This morning is going to be in Exodus chapter 16. It'll be on the screen. We also have that available uh, in the app as well. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 30. Uh, it's a lengthy uh, portion of text, but God's word is very important for us. It's more important than the words that I would even say. So we're going to read those uh, verses uh, in their entirety. But leading up to this text, uh, Israel has been wandering and traveling. They are hungry, they are tired, they are hangry, and they are absolutely wiped out. And instead of turning to God uh, in love and care and adoration for what God has done for them and what he promised to do with them, they turn to God in grumbling. And hear God's response starting in verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel at evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he's heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness, a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? They did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, and melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. 
And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Miraculous provision is what the headlines read in the newspapers in Chicago in 1880. During uh, this time, what happened uh, was the Clarks, George and Sarah Clark, took all of their money, took all of their savings, and bought the Pacific Beer Garden. They purchased this beer garden to turn it into a ministry that they named into the Pacific Garden Mission. It was in Chicago, and what would happen at this mission is they would care for the homeless, the addicted, and the downtrodden who weren't able to care for themselves. The Clarks were paying all of their mortgage, all of the supplies. They were paying for all of it out of their pocket, and they were doing such a wonderful work there that God grew that ministry faster than they could bring money in to support it. So a few months went by. They weren't able to pay their mortgage. Their supplies were running low, and they came home from work one evening and found a notice on their door, and it said that if they weren't able to pay their mortgage within 48 hours, that they would be evicted the ministry would have to close its doors. And the clerks are wondering, how in the world are we gonna ever pay for these bills? How are we gonna provide for these people? God, you've called us to this work seemingly. Why in the world uh, are we in this place? God, what are you going to do? It's in that moment, instead of grumbling, they turned to God in prayer. And the clerks decided in and of themselves that they were going to join hands and pray the entire night. And that's what they did. They prayed all night without sleeping and they walked out the next morning absolutely exhausted and tired and worn out. And exhausted and tired and worn out is right where Israel is in our text this morning. For months they had been following God. They're tired, they're hungry, their tummies are grumbling and it causes their hearts to crumble, grumble against God. Their faith is fragile and weak. And it helps us to ask, how in the world does God respond to his children's fragile faith? Think about it. If you were God and you were providing for your children, for your people constantly, pouring out yourselves, answering all their prayer requests, answering all their grumbling against you, how would you respond? God responds very differently than what we think in ways that he should respond. He provides three ways abundantly, proportionately, and consistently. All right, and in verses four through 16, we see God giving abundantly. After Israel has lashed out at God, they deserved wrath. They deserved God's judgment. They were saying some pretty terrible things against God and God's mercy for them, but instead of raining down wrath, God rains down mercy in the form of bread for his people. God is showing in the face of their fragile faith, he's going to show them his tender, loving care for them. God knows that they have fragile and weak faith. God knows this about them, and part of this wilderness journey was to teach Israel faith and obedience. And the good news for us in 2020, we're on uh, this side of the cross, we can look back and look over the New Testament and Old Testament, and we see in the book of James chapter two, James is talking about this exact same thing. 
James says, I will show you my faith by my works. And this is precisely what God's doing with his children. God knows that he can show Israel miracle after miracle after miracle, and his people would still have weak faith. He knows that they need to apply their faith in their everyday life, day after day. And this is why they were only together for what they could eat for the day. At night, God would provide them quail to eat, and in the morning, God would give them bread. And if you'll notice in verse eight, he gives them bread and meat to the full. All right, you'll see this language of uh, a fullness and abundance and all they could eat. Verse 16, God instructs them to gather all you can eat. God's giving abundantly here. And what does this tell us about God? It tells us that in the, in the face of his people's grumbling and frustration with him, he doesn't meet grumbling with grumbling. He meets their grumbling with mercy. God's teaching us that he is an abundant giver of good things. And God gives abundantly to his children despite their sins. Notice that God didn't give Israel a bunch of spears and nets and shotguns to go around and hunt to find birds. And he didn't give them a flour and buttermilk and, and eggs to make uh this bread. He's not giving them the tools to succeed. He is giving them everything they need to succeed. He is laying abundant provision at their feet. This was a radical reversal of what they've experienced for their entire lives in Egypt. You'll notice before we came to our text, I noted that Israel was grumbling. If you look back in verses one through three, you'll see Israel grumbling against God telling God that, well, when we were in Egypt under Pharaoh, we had meat pots to the full. We had everything that we could eat. We were incredibly satisfied. But that was an actual lie. That was not the lives they were living. Pharaoh gave them just enough to keep them from dying. And then he forced them to work in horrible conditions and beat them. They were treated terribly. They were slaves. But somehow they're looking back on their past like it was much better than what they have with God. This is painful here. One commentator writes about Israel that it's easier to take Israel out of Egypt than it is to take Egypt out of Israel. And God knows this about his people. That's why he's taking them on this wilderness journey. He's wanting to work out 430 years of slave indoctrination out of his people. And God knows that this process is a slow one. It's going to be a long play for Israel to be changed into his image. But the good news about God is he doesn't start anything he doesn't intend on completing. Virginia Satir famously said that most people prefer the certainty of misery to the misery of uncertainty. I'll say that again. Most people prefer the certainty of misery to the misery of uncertainty. And that's Israel. That's Israel here. It's heartbreaking. But what God is teaching them through this, through trusting in him, is they are not slaves anymore. That they are truly free in him. God is teaching them every day that he loves them and cares for them, that he's always going to provide for them. But Israel stayed spiritually shackled 
to their past. Israel stayed shackled to their sin because of all the years of slavery and darkness that they lived in. And shackled is actually how uh, elephant trainers trained these massive elephants to stay in place in circuses and zoos and places where uh, you can pay money and go and touch all these animals. So these trainers get elephants when they're babies and they have these huge bracelets around their legs with these thick, heavy chains and they attach them to stakes that go really deep in the ground. And when the baby elephant tries to leave, they're stuck. So naturally, like elephants and uh, things do, they grow. And over time, the elephants get accustomed to being shackled to their chains and the stake. And they're so accustomed to being shackled that when the elephant's full grown, the only thing keeping the elephant in place is a tiny bracelet around their leg with no chain and no stake. They're shackled to their places by what's between their ears. They don't realize that they're free. And the same is true for all of us. Our sin causes us to be shackled to our former lives, to the shame of the sins that we've committed in the past. Our sin shackles us from not recognizing God's hand of love and provision and care for us in our daily lives. And it, our sin causes us to stay shackled from recognizing God's goodness to us. Our sin causes us to think, yeah, there might be a God out there, but I've got to take control of what's happening today and I have to fend for myself because I just don't see God moving how I think God should move. We see this in the way that we interact with people. Imagine how you would feel and maybe you've experienced someone slandering you deeply. I'm not talking about a little white. I'm talking about saying something horrible about you or your family or your children or your business, and it costs you a promotion. It keeps your, this lie keeps your kids from getting into the school that you want them to get into. This lie ruins your friendship, tarnishes your reputation. You may have not acted on it, but if you're anything like me, I bet you felt, oh, if I could just get my hands on that rascal, Right? You maybe not have been there. It may be a situation in your life where you have, uh, you've made a plan, you're working your plan, you're executing your plan, then all of a sudden, God takes you on a detour. And you're looking around, and this is not my plan. This is not what I'm, what I, where I expected myself to be. God, what are you doing? And when the unknown hits, fear grips you. And fear doesn't travel alone. Fear always travels with the tag team duo of bitterness and anger, and you're there. You're wondering, God, why are you doing this to me? You see, our sinful responses to the challenge of this world reveals who we practically trust, right? It's one thing to talk about faith. It's another thing to walk in faith. And if we believe that God is really in control of the world and everything in it, and he's also in control of every single thing that we do, every day that we experience on this earth, God's sovereign loving hands are in control of us, then that means when things happen, good or bad, why do we respond so viscerally? Why when people slander us or try to ruin our reputation, why not respond with, well, if he knew the whole story, he would know I'm much worse than that. 
What happens when our plans don't go according to the way that we think, and instead of responding with fear, why not respond in, God, this is painful, but I trust you. If God's in control, we shouldn't fear change, but we do. It's the pain of what we experience in life. This is why God gives Israel manna. This is why God gives them bread from heaven. God's not just trying to satiate the grumbling of their stomachs, but he's trying to satisfy the longing and the grumbling of their hearts. He wants them to practically rely on him every single day, one day at a time. God's giving them this bread to help them in their worship. God wants them to take a bite and to see this provision and to thank God and to praise him abundantly for all that he's done for them. God wants their hearts. God wants their worship, and he wants them to see how much he loves them. So we asked earlier, how does God deal with his people's fragile faith? Well, we see he responds abundantly, but he also gives proportionately. And we see this in verses 17 through 22. We see God providing for his people and everyone exactly what they needed at exactly the right time. You'll notice in verse 17, those who gather too much, they didn't have any left over. And those who gather too little had just enough. They had no lack. What in the world is God doing here? God's cultivating in his people hearts of trust, hearts of reliance on him instead of trusting their own slave instincts of hoarding and hiding and keeping back because we don't know what tomorrow is gonna bring, therefore I need to take care of myself. What God is doing is gently but relentlessly fighting back against his people's satisfaction with their former lives. Moses would go on later in Deuteronomy chapter eight and write this about this manna experience. He says this to Israel, God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you didn't grow, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The Lord fed you in the wilderness that he might humble you and test you, to do you good in the end. God is doing that same work that he has done with Israel. He is continuing that work today. God is relentlessly working in all of our lives and our hearts to make us more like him. And it's an ongoing, slow process. And God knows exactly what we all need. Some of us a little bit more, some of us a little bit less. God knows exactly what we all need at the right time. So this means that the situation you might be going through today is exactly what God wants you to go through to make you trust and to look more like him. God is doing this to help you understand his provision and his care. God wants you to trust in the word that he is given us and that he has proclaimed. This is no accident for what you're going through. Louis Toverg retells the story about this first century rabbi. His name was Rabbi Akiva. 
And one day as uh, the rabbi was shepherding his flocks, he noticed that there was a, a slow stream going over the side of a cliff, and he goes to the edge of the cliff and looks down and notices that there's this very large boulder there. And inside of this boulder, there was a large channel running through the middle of the boulder. And what had happened was over years and years and years of the water trickling down on this boulder, it uh, caved inside of the rock. It ate away at this rock and created this uh, massive divot. And he says this, if mere water can do this to hard rock, how much more can God's word carve away into my heart of flesh? And the rabbi noticed that if the water would have all flowed over this rock in one, one shot, if masses of amounts of water would have gone over, it wouldn't have left an impression in the rock, but it was the slow and steady impact of each small drop of water, day after day, year after year, season after season, that completely changed the stone. The same is true for us. God's relentless pursuit of us, God's relentless care for us in his grace to us through his word, through worship, through prayer, through community, is that slow and steady, persistent pursuit of us that turns our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh and leaves an eternal impact on our hearts. And this is so important for us to understand because you need to hear that this is no accident where you are today. You're not here in 2020 because of your own efforts. You're not here because you made some grand mistake or some perfect uh, choice. God is working out a plan in your life that in hindsight will make absolute and perfect sense. The problem is we can't, see into the future and look back on today. God wants us every single day to trust him one day at a time, and that's what faith is. It's every single day relying on God, and God calls you to trust in his goodness and love, and here's the good news, when you fail, not if you fail, but when you fail to trust God, when your when you're grumbling turns outward, and it turns to cynicism and anger towards God, you can come back to that fountain of grace and that steady stream of God's mercy and find forgiveness. It's so good to know that you cannot out the goodness of God. And when you find that refreshment, it encourages you more and it strengthens you more to continue your daily journey in the wilderness of this world. So how does God respond to his people's fragile faith? Well, he responds abundantly. We see that he provides proportionally, but finally he provides consistently. Consistently, and we see this consistency in verses 22 through 30. It's here where God commands Israel to have one day of solemn and holy rest to the Lord. On the sixth day, they are to gather a double portion of all this meat and bread, and on the seventh day, they're to spend the day resting and eating and enjoying God's provision. And when God instructs his people to rest, it's something much greater than naps. Because have you ever had a nap and you wake up more tired after the nap? God means something way more important than just napping. God is intending total mind, body, and soul peace 
and stillness and calmness. And it takes work to do that. For God's people, they're to double up on the sixth day so that the seventh day, they don't have any more work to do. They don't have anything to worry about. And they can spend the day enjoying each other and enjoying God. And God was giving them this day off from gathering and working and from all this toil and laboring. He's giving them a day off for worrying about their future, how they were going to survive. And God was commanding this to be a part of his people's lives consistently for the rest of their lives because God knows that we need to rest. Uh, One famous pastor says that, uh, how does God prove that you are not God? That we need sleep, that we need rest. But guess how Israel responds to this gracious command? On brand with Israel, they did not listen. They still went out to work. They still went out to gather bread, but they didn't find any. They couldn't rest because Pharaoh had conditioned them year after year after year to only know work to only know toil, and to be beaten when they weren't working. So when God commands his people to rest, what he's doing is giving them a completely new worldview. God is giving them a new way of life, of obedience and faith and trust to him. And this was revolutionary for Israel. This was so incredible. But there's also something very important about this command to rest here. God commands this seventh day rest, the Sabbath's rest, before he gave the Ten Commandments. You see, God's grace and God's care is also preceding God's law, which is also loving for us. This law of rest, this command to rest, even stretches back before sin entered the world. God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. So this is a good command for us. This is a good provision that God is building in our lives. And God is teaching his people to reflect his order of creation. We're to work hard for six days to get our affairs in order and to rest on the seventh. It's often said that the sin of breaking the Sabbath doesn't happen on Sunday, it happens on Saturday because we weren't prepared for Sunday, right? So what God is doing is building in his people's lives a consistent refrain of work and rest. And you'll notice as the picture's getting bigger here, God is providing for them every single day. And then one day a week, they're to completely stop. God is building into his people's lives uh, daily and weekly rhythms of worship. And then what happens when you have all these daily and weekly events? The picture grows and grows and grows. And then after years, God has left his imprint on Israel and they're changed and they're able to worship and see God's abundant provision and rest in his care. And for all of us, this command still applies today. This isn't a gentle suggestion. God is commanding us to rest. And we should celebrate that. We should take the Sabbath seriously. We're commanded to, t- to take a day of rest and to fill our minds with the goodness of God and all that he's done for us in Jesus, of all the ways that he provides for us, to look around and see that there's other Christians around us that God is bringing into your life to help point you to him when life gets really hard. We're to take a day and to celebrate that, to see what God has done for us in the past and when the uncertainty of life we look forward to, 
We know that things aren't in our control, but we look around and people help us, uh, help remind us of God's past grace in our lives. God knows we need these rhythms in our lives. We need a day to shut out the world's stresses. We need a, a day to celebrate God's goodness. And Albert Schweitzer famously, famously said, says that if your soul has no Sunday, it becomes an orphan. We live stressed out lives. We battle with disbelief. We battle with pain. We deal with bitterness. We deal with the emotional scars of our past. And for some of us, the physical scars of our past, shame and guilt war at us all the time. We have notifications that bombard us, advertisements. Now we're in the middle of an epidemic. Now we're in the middle of a political cycle. I mean, this is just nonstop stress and strife and a low-grade noise that's always in our lives that erodes our ability to rest. God knows we need a break from the madness and to come and let God's grace and mercy wash over you where you can feed on this mercy of God's manna provided for us. You may be looking around and thinking, well, what in the world is that manna today? Like, where is this bread? Well, in John chapter six, uh, Jesus had just performed this miracle where he fed a bunch of people and uh, the people were coming up and they were asking him for a miracle like this manna experience that Israel had here. And Jesus responds and he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And the people responded properly. They said this, Lord, give us this bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall not hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. No matter where you are, in this room or listening at home, that bread of life can be yours. You have a hunger inside of you that is much greater than bread and water. You have a spiritual hunger that God created you to have that is only met in the person and work of Jesus. That spiritual hunger is only met by trusting in the resurrected Jesus who is able to heal your emotional and physical wounds, who is able to rid you of your guilt, who is able to provide you peace in the face of uncertainty and pain and challenge and uh, a world full of strife and stress. Your souls are longing for that. And God is giving you that bread. He lays it out for you and offers you to come and eat and drink freely through no effort of your own, but through the effort of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for you. There was a photographer taking uh, class photos of this first grade class, and if you've ever been around first graders, they are very brutally honest with their words. So to uh, break the kind of nerves that these little kids feel, this little girl sits down and this photographer starts having a small talk with the girl, and he says, little girl, 
what are you going to be when you grow up? And y'all, she looked him dead in the face, and she said, I'm gonna be tired. Tired, right? A lot of y'all can feel that. And tired was exactly where the Clarks were after praying all night long for some sort of miraculous provision from God. They got that. They walked outside, and y'all, this is not some preacher that's drunk too much communion wine. This story really happened. You can go read this online. This is an incredible story of God's miraculous provision, okay? I'm not making this up. They walk outside, and they look in their yard, and their front yard is full of mushrooms, full of mushrooms, all right? And the crazy thing about this was it was not mushroom season, and mushrooms can command a very large uh, price, okay? So what they did was they gathered up basketfuls of these mushrooms, basketfuls of mushrooms, and they took it to this really fancy hotel that lived, uh, that lived, that existed right down uh, the road from where they lived. They turned all these in and sold it to the hotel, so much so that they were able to pay for all of their back mortgage payments, and they were able to pay for the ministry to not only uh, meet their needs for the day, but they were able to expand the ministry and buy food and supplies that could help them expand to the growing need. In that moment, God provided miraculously. He provided abundantly. He provided proportionately. They needed exactly what they needed to make this ministry exist and to expand. And God gave them consistently because this is the second oldest rescue mission that exists in America. You can go online and read about their mission. You can even donate to it if you feel so led to. They are still reaching the downcast and the beaten and, and the lonely. They are sharing the gospel with these people and caring for them. And that's the God that we worship. That's the God that you can know this morning. So I ask you, where are you this morning? Are you tired? Has, two, has 2020 kicked you in the pants? Has it thrown you some curveballs that you didn't realize could happen? I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. If you're emotionally and spiritually and physically tired, come to Jesus. Find rest. Trust in him who gives you everything and more that you could ever need. He's provided for you everything in his life, death and resurrection. And if you'll trust in him, it doesn't guarantee that you are going to have everything that you could ever want, but you will never lack a need to survive and trust and love in him. If you're tired this morning, trust in God's word. And I'll close with a beautiful, beautiful piece of scripture. And I want this to wash over you. I want this, this text to be the drip that hits your heart this morning that you would be changed forever by this. I want this text for you to hopefully remember and turn to it because when we leave this room, life is going to still be there and it's going to be hard and you need to be, you need to be and I need to be reminded of God's love and goodness. Hear this text from Zephaniah 3.17. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. This is a point in the sermon where you shouldn't be like, I hope they're listening. You need to get this. 
He will rejoice over you with gladness. Despite your sins and failure in Christ, God will rejoice over you. God's not mad at you. Goes on to say, he will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's such good news. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing that you love sinners like us. You didn't come to save those who have everything figured out. You came for the sick, the needy, the hungry, those who realize that, Father, we are not in control and we need help, and that's all of us. Father, you came to save sinners. You took our sins on you. You give us your righteousness through faith alone, and you promise us that you will give us everything we need in heaven and on earth to worship you. You have sealed our eternity. Nothing will snatch us out of your hand. And Father, true contentment and peace is found in you. I pray that we would know that sooner than later, that we would cling to your promises and truth and sing your praises. We do all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.